Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Faithfulness is a word that uh, describes our character sometimes. It is an attribute that we desire to have in life, and we desire for those who are close to us to exhibit that same character. It simply means that we do what we say we're going to do, we are where we say we're going to be, and on time, I might add, and uh, it's a character quality that we all desire to have. It's difficult sometimes to uh, be faithful in being faithful, but we strive to do that. It means fulfilling your promises when, because your word is your bond. It means even when things get difficult or costly, that you still do what you say you're going to do and be where you say you're going to be, even when something better comes along at the last moment. It's a word that we often think about in our marriages fulfilling our marriage vows, being faithful to the spouse that we have until death do us part as we've promised to do. Of course, we also realize that we don't always live up to this ideal. Others don't either. Divorce does happen. Uh, People do go through adulterous relationships. Friendships do fall apart because one person is not true to the other. Promises are broken. People are not always going to do what they say they're going to do or be where they say they are going to be. It's just a fact in our broken and sinful world that we are not always going to be faithful. And in fact, unfaithfulness might describe our lives more than we care to admit, which makes it hard for us to fully understand a God who is indeed faithful, a God who is always true to his name, always true to his nature, always fulfills his promises. But because human relationships are often so disappointing, we have a hard time believing that. We have a hard time really convincing ourselves that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. This morning we are beginning a new series that I'm calling Ancient Encounters. We are going to look at 12 people in the Old Testament And we're going to see what we can learn about God as a result. We are not going to be looking at their whole life. This is not a character study of whatever individual we are talking about for that day. This is not a series designed to help us see how we can follow their example or avoid some sort of sin that they were entrapped by. We are just going to spend one week on each person, and therefore we're not going to look over all of their life. And in fact, we might not even look at what might characterize that person. In other words, the story that you most identify with an Old Testament character, it might not be the story that we're looking at. Because as I said, we are going to look specifically at the encounters that these individuals had with God. And there again, it's not, we're not doing this so that we might have a similar encounter. Many of these are going to be unique and not repeatable. But we do want to see how God deals with his people, both then and now. And we will attempt to take these Old Testament stories and see what we can find out about them from the New Testament. 
We are going to do this in chronological order. So today we are in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, as we look at the life of Abraham, our father Abraham. Now I'm going to call him Abraham this whole sermon. I realize that at the time we're reading this, his name is Abram. But just for simplicity's sake, I'm going to call him Abraham throughout the course of this sermon. Abraham gets a lot of attention for his faith, for his faithfulness. He's in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. And in fact, it's one of the longer sections in Hebrews chapter 11. But our concern this morning is not necessarily the faith of Abraham, though we will look at that. Instead, we're going to talk about the faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness to our Father. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. And verse 6, He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And we're going to see first of all that God reaffirms the promise. Genesis chapter 15 opens with these words, after these things, which means by necessity, we've got to figure out what these things are. What has gone on in the life of Abraham leading up to those words that begin chapter 15? You know that Abraham's story began when God called him to leave his land and everything that he knew and travel to a land that he did not know, something that he did by faith. Though, of course, there was some disobedience along the way as well. His is not a perfect story. It's not all faith. There were times when he did some things that he should not have done. Multiple times he lied about who his wife was because he was afraid of those who were around him. He's traveled with his nephew Lot. They have begun to prosper, so much so that they needed to split up. Split up so that their livestock could have enough land to graze on. And so he allows his nephew to choose the the better portion. And so they split up, and then some other kings come. And among other things, they take Lot and his possessions captive. And so Abraham is forced to go after Lot, and he does go after Lot. He is able to rescue Lot from these four enemy kings and bring him and his possessions back. And as he's coming back, there is that mysterious encounter that Abraham has with Melchizedek. So it is this last episode where Abraham has gone and captured or recaptured Lot and brought him back that is in view as we open Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham is afraid. Otherwise, there's no reason for God to start the encounter by saying, fear not. Abraham is likely afraid of these enemy kings who were all larger and more powerful than he was. And so God comes to him and says, do not be afraid. He was afraid that they might attack him again and conquer him. 
And so God reminds him that he is his protector and his shield. Abraham is not to concern himself with weapons or warfare. Those are not the things that are going to protect him. It is going to be God who does the protection. A reminder that we need sometimes as well. That when we have God in our lives and on our side, there is no reason to fear, no matter what our circumstances might be, or no reason to fear other people. And we are repeatedly reminded of this throughout Scripture. But God is not only His protector. God is His reward. A strange twist, because Abraham had taken the spoils of war that were every, uh, he had every reason to do it, but he did not accept them. And then he ties to Melchizedek because he wants a, a better reward, the presence and the power and the promises of God. Now, the promises that God give him, gives him here, I've said that God reaffirms his promise. The promise is twofold. There's the promise of land. That is why we call it the promised land. And there is promise of descendants. Now, this is not the first time this promise has, has been given. That's why this point is God reaffirms the promise because some five to ten years earlier, God had told Abraham this very thing. But now Abraham is beginning to doubt. And in fact, he's told him this promise twice. This is the third time, and he will get even more specific later on. So in this reaffirmation, he takes him outside and he says, look up at the heavens and see if you can count the number of stars. Earlier, he had said, uh, the sand by the seashore. Both of these comparisons are a way of saying your, your descendants will be so numerous that they cannot be counted. Now, we've talked sometimes about how difficult it is to wait, especially on something that you are really excited about, like a graduation day, your marriage day, or your retirement day. But at least in those situations, we can count. That is, we know when the day is coming, and so we know how many days we have to wait. But you need to understand here with Abraham, he had no way to count down the days to when God was going to fulfill his promise because there was not a set date, making this much harder to go through. And that's what Abraham and his wife Sarah are dealing with. They've been given the promise of many descendants, and they've already been waiting five to ten years, and they're going to have to wait some more. And so it is natural for his faith to be mixed with doubt. Did we hear God correctly? Is God really going to fulfill his promise? And so they need this reaffirmation. But secondly, we notice not only does God reaffirm the promise, but God recognized the problem. Now, by that, I do not mean that there was a problem with God. The problem was not with God. The problem was with Abraham. As I said, he had been given the promise of many descendants. But many descendants start with one. And he doesn't have that yet. And so he knows he can't have many descendants until he has that first one. And so he bemoans the fact that a servant in his house is going to be his heir rather than his own son. He and his wife are growing well past the age of childbearing. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in that chapter 11 says that Abraham was as good as dead. That's how old he was when the promise is finally fulfilled. And so he's beginning to doubt that this promise is ever going to happen. There's no technology that can help him along this path. God is the one who opens and closes the womb, and so they must wait on God to do so. 
So God says to him, no, your servant is not going to be your heir. Your very own son will be. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that later, when the promise still has not been fulfilled, Abraham and Sarah hatch a plot. That is, Hagar, her, uh, another servant in the house, is, is going to bear a child for Abraham. And they decide that this is the way to fulfill God's promise. This is the way to help God along. And instead, it's not going to fulfill the promise. It is going to be a, a disastrous and faithless thing for them to do. And there again, God is going to come back after that and reaffirm the promise once again for them, this time getting more specific and saying specifically that Sarah is going to bear the child. Now, it is certainly encouraging to know that even when we lose faith, God is faithful. He had made a promise to Abraham and Sarah, and that promise did not change when they began to doubt and when they began to plot. It's also important for us to remember that they were living in the moment. In other words, they didn't have the benefit like we do of knowing the rest of the story. You see, we, we can gloss over this rather quickly and we say, well, yeah, of course they were struggling a bit, but we know that God is going to fulfill his promise because we know the rest of the story. But they didn't know that. They believed it, but they didn't know it for sure. And so they're living in the moment of fear and struggle and doubt mixed with faith. And as I said, it's, it's a problem, but not a problem for God because God can do anything. He recognized that this couple, couple was struggling with their faith and lovingly reassured them on multiple occasions. And as we're going to see in just a moment, Abraham does respond to this reassurance with faith. Though again, that doesn't mean he's not going to struggle again. Faith is often mixed with fear. Faith is often mixed with doubt. Our faith is fickle. And so we might be strong in our faith one Sunday morning, and the next Sunday morning, wonder if there's any God at all, or God, does God hear us? That's just the nature of our faith. Well, so far, we've basically just talked about the story. God has given this couple a promise. That promise has gone on for years now, and it has not been fulfilled. And so from the eyes of Abraham and Sarah, there is a problem. And that problem is that the promise has not come to pass. But now we want to talk about the significance of all of this. Because it's not just about a story. So let's see thirdly that God grants the pardon. Some people say that verse 6, Genesis 15 verse 6, some people call it the most significant verse in the Bible. Now if I were to have asked you that, you would have probably said John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, you know that verse. But many scholars point right here to Genesis 15 and verse 6 and say it's the most important verse because here we get in the very first book of the Bible, Justification by faith. The doctrine upon which the church stands or falls, said Martin Luther. Here we find in the 15th chapter of the Bible, the answer to life's greatest question. How can sinful men and women be made right with a holy God? How can we who are sinners be in the presence of God? How can God be just and yet justify us? And we find the answer right here in the first book of the Bible. We don't have to wait until Romans, though Romans does spell it out very beautifully. But we get it right here in the book of Genesis. And it is a simple truth, though millions struggle to actually believe it. Abraham believed God. That's it. There it is in one verse. 
He believed the Lord, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He was saved, to use our terminology. And as we've already said, that doesn't mean he's going to be perfect. That doesn't mean his faith is always going to be solid from this point forward. He's still going to struggle even as we do. But here his faith was counted unto him as righteousness. Some translations use the word reckon. That's a good southern word. It was reckoned unto him. But I like counted better. You know, when I moved to New Jersey as a kid, I don't tell very many people that, but I did move to New Jersey as a kid, and they, don't, they didn't know what the word reckon meant. They didn't know what fixin' meant. Those were two words I used all the time, and I had to explain it to them, what, what they meant. But reckon means, I suppose. So it's really not the greatest translation, because counted is better. This is not a supposition. There is no hesitancy here. Counting is a, a counting term. It means take it from one side of the ledger and put it on the other, signifying that it has been paid. Not that it appears to be paid, but it has been paid. And that's exactly what is happening here. It is not treating it as if it is paid. It is declaring that it has been paid. A declaration that someone is right with God, not based on their own righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Christ. Now, I realize that Abraham didn't understand all of that. I realize that Abraham didn't know how all of this was going to work out as far as Christ coming in Bethlehem and, and living and dying and rising again. I realize that Abraham didn't know all of those things. But us, looking back to the Old Testament from the New, we can see that that is indeed how the story came about. And the story of the gospel has its beginnings right here in Genesis chapter 15. And when you have the righteousness of Christ, you don't need anything else on that side of the ledger. There's nothing else there because you have all you need. That's what Paul was saying in that famous passage in Philippians where, where he goes through his resume. He says, you know, as far as zeal, as far as knowledge, as far as obedience to the law, I had it all. But once he came to know Christ, he said, I counted all of those things as rubbish compared to the having Christ. Because there is no comparison and there is nothing else needed. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 is quoted three different times in the New Testament. Once by Paul in the book of Galatians. And if you know anything about Galatians, you know that Paul is arguing in that book against the fulfilling of the law or specifically circumcision as a, as a necessary thing for salvation. And so he goes back to Genesis 15 and verse 6 to make that argument because the law has not yet been given. Because circumcision has not yet been instituted. And yet, Abraham was counted righteous. How can that be? Because of the righteousness of Christ. He says very much the same thing in the book of Romans, where it's quoted a number of times. And the third instance where it's used is in the book of James. In fact, James is arguing a, a little bit differently there. James uses this verse to argue that, yes, we are saved by faith, but not that a faith that is alone. Because the faith that is alone is no faith at all. And so he argues not only from Genesis 15, but he argues from that famous story where Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. And that's why this verse in the very first book of the Bible is so significant. Because it lays out the foundation of salvation for us. You know, sometimes people will ask, well, how were people in the Old Testament saved? And they act like it's a, it's a difficult question. 
It's one of those perplexing questions they think in the Christian life. But it's not perplexing at all. In fact, the Bible says it right here. How were people saved in the Old Testament? By faith, by the grace of God. And it was counted to them as righteousness. They were saved just like we are, though again, they didn't know all of the details. Now, the rest of Genesis chapter 15 is a covenant that God makes with Abraham. And not only do they make the covenant, but they ratify the covenant. So how do they do that? Well, they don't do it like we would do it. We would just sign some papers, right? If you and I were making an agreement on something, we would have some papers drawn up. We might have a notary uh, public to, to verify it, but we would sign some documents. That's not how they did it in the Old Testament. What they did in the Old Testament was they sacrificed an animal. We've been reading a lot about that in Leviticus. And so they would, sac they would sacrifice an animal. They would cut that animal in two. And then the parties making the agreement would walk in between the pieces of the animal. And basically they were pledging. This is a, a picture of a promise. They were pledging, may it be also to me if I don't fulfill this covenant. In other words, they were saying, I would rather die than not fulfill this covenant. So it's a, it's a great picture of promise. And that's what happens in the rest of chapter 15. Only there is a significant difference still have your Bibles open? Look down at verse 12. Let's see what Abraham was doing. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. What's Abram doing in this covenant ceremony? He's asleep. He's doing nothing. It's reminiscent of the sleep that fell on Adam earlier in this book. Now look down at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What does that represent? It represents God. God is walking in between these pieces of the animal, ratifying the covenant while Abraham is asleep. This is a unilateral covenant. This is not an agreement between two parties. This is God saying, this is what I'm going to do for you, and I am going to ratify this covenant. It is a covenant of grace that has absolutely nothing to do with anything Abraham may or may not do in the past or moving forward. And I trust you can understand that yours is the same pardon. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God pardons you just the same way he pardoned Abraham. Justification is being made right with God by the grace of God. It's as simple as that. God provides the pardon or God grants the pardon. Lastly, God provides the provision. Now, it is certainly not a leap to see Jesus in all of this ceremony here. But again, we can move forward because we know the rest of the story. We can move forward to talk about Isaac, the child finally born to Abraham and Sarah that was indeed the fulfillment of the promise. Or, or we could talk about the most famous story of his life where I mentioned it a moment ago where he was willing to offer that son of the promise at God's command and his faith in doing that, telling his son along the way when his son says, uh, dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abram says, God will provide the sacrifice. We could talk about that beautiful story or we could talk about his descendants years later finally occupying and owning the land that God had promised. Something Abraham, even Hebrews tells us this, Abraham did not get that promise. He never saw the promised land or he never owned the promised land in his lifetime. He only owned one little sliver of it as a burial plot for his family. But surely our interest in this story 
goes beyond looking at some pictures of Abraham's grandkids or seeing a plot of land in the Middle East where they eventually lived. Because while Isaac was a partial fulfillment, Isaac was not the ultimate fulfillment. And even Abraham realized that. In that section of Hebrews chapter 11 that deals with Abraham, it, it acknowledged that Abraham died having not received the promised land. But, but it also says that he and others realized that they were strangers and exiles here on the earth. And that the plot of land in the Middle East was not the ultimate fulfillment. Instead, it says they desired a better country, a heavenly one, a true homeland for God and his children. We share that same provision. Jesus told us, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. We share that same provision and that same promise. Are you looking forward to it? Are you thinking about that heavenly country? Or are our minds so focused here? Secondly, in that passage in Galatians that I referenced where Paul quotes Genesis 15 and verse 6, there is another significant statement. He says concerning the covenant, the promise were made to Abraham and his offspring. And Paul says, offspring singular, not offspring plural. Well, why is that significant? Well, he gives us the answer to that. He states it very clearly. And to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. That's what he says in Galatians 3 and verse 16. That the promise was ultimately not about Isaac, though Isaac was a partial fulfillment. But the promise was about the coming Messiah. Last week we said that we preach Christ crucified. And by that we, we understand that that's the, the power of salvation. That that is the way we are saved, by believing it by faith in Christ. Because he lived a righteous life, his righteousness can be put on our side of the ledger. His righteousness can be put on our account. Because he died a substitutionary death, satisfying the wrath of God against sinners. We then can be set free from our sin. And we can have a relationship with God. That is how God can be just and yet justify the ungodly. Remember I said at the outset that that's, that's the greatest question. How can God be a holy God and allow sinners into his presence? How can God be a just God and justify the ungodly? And he does it through the cross. This is the good news of the gospel. Not from your favorite New Testament passage, but right here from the first book of the Bible and from our father Abraham. I titled my sermon that intentionally. God's faithfulness to our father. Not because we're Jews. You know, the Jews thought that they were right with God because Abraham was their father. They thought by virtue of that ancestry, they were right with God. But Jesus said, no, it's not a matter of your ancestry. It's a matter of if you and I have the faith that Abraham had. And if we have the faith of Abraham, then Jew or Gentile alike, we are a child of Abraham because we have the same pardon and the same provision that he enjoyed. There is an interesting dialogue in John chapter 8 between Jesus and some Jews. Uh, the, Jesus claimed that if they listened and followed him, they would never see death. 
And you can imagine that's a difficult concept to understand. And so the, the Jews responded. They now had all the proof they needed that Jesus had a demon. Because Abraham and all of the other prophets had died. Was Jesus now making a claim that he was greater than Abraham, something that they would not tolerate? And so they asked him in this dialogue, who do you make yourself out to be? And listen to at least a part of his answer. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's why I said earlier that Abraham knew that Isaac wasn't the ultimate fulfillment because Abraham was looking forward to something else. And Jesus said he saw it and was glad. But how is that possible? Since Abraham lived many years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And that's what they said. They said, you're not yet 50 years old. How, how do you know Abraham? You couldn't have possibly been around in those days. And so they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And his, his response is perhaps the clearest, clearest statement of his deity in all of the New Testament. In response, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that that's the name of God that God told Moses. When Moses said, when I go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, whom shall I say sent me? And God says, tell him I am sent you. And Jesus is picking up that name and applying it to himself because he is God. And they for once understood that because their response was they picked up stones intending to stone him. My concern this morning is not how they understood his statement. My concern is, do we understand his statement? How are we going to respond? Are we going to pick up stones? Probably not, but we might have a stony heart. The other option is to bow before him and accept his provision of salvation by faith so that we too can be counted as righteous, even as our father Abraham. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we've had to gather here this morning and hear your word. To see the, the gospel in, in the very first book of the Bible. He believed the Lord and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ that, set, that can cover us. Thank you for the shed blood of Christ that pays our sin debt. Thank you for the grace by which we are saved through faith. And I pray that we would not only live for you, but we would long for that day when we see the ultimate fulfillment of the promises you've given to us. And we are in your presence with you forever. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. You respond.